0: Hi, everybody. Thank you for coming. Um, Paul Whitcover, the uh, Associate Dean of the Online MFA. Uh, absolutely thrilled to have Elizabeth Hand here with us tonight. Uh, Liz is the author of 20 multiple award winning novels, five collections of short fiction and essays, and numerous media tie in books. A longtime reviewer for The Washington Post and the magazine of fantasy and science fiction, her criticism and essays have also appeared in The Los Angeles Times. Boston Review, Salon, Village Voice, and numerous other publications. Her fiction includes the Casanieri series, the supernatural thriller *Hokula Road*, *Curious Toys*, featuring the visionary artist Henry Darger, and uh, five lucky attendees tonight will win a copy of that uh, incredible book. Uh, And Wilding Hall, a haunting on. Uh, And Wilding Hall, which is uh, uh, we'll talk about a little bit in the Q&A portion of the evening. Uh, A Haunting on the Hill, which I happen to have a copy of right here, is uh, Liz's follow on to Shirley Jackson's classic, The Haunting of Hill House, and the first book to be authorized by Jackson's estate. It has just been published to rave reviews, including a deep cut in The New Yorker, where Jackson published 15 stories, including her most famous story, The Lottery. Uh, Hand teaches creative writing at the Stone Coast MFA program and has recently led workshop, workshops in Lahore, Pakistan, Oxford, UK, and many other places. Generation Loss and its sequels in the Castaneri series are in development for a UK TV series and her novel Wilding Hall is under option also in the UK. She divides her time between the coast of Maine and North London. Please help me in welcoming Liz to tonight's event. <laughs>
1: Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here. <laughs> that was, well, we, uh, we, that
0: was <laughs> we couldn't be happier to have you. I mean, uh, uh, I think, you know, there, a lot of our students are really into uh, horror. They're into folk horror. Uh, they're into these, the genres that you have, have worked so well in. And in some cases, even I would say pioneered, um, certainly like folk horror, elements of which are very strongly evident in the Haunting on the Hill. Um, and we'll talk more about that, I know, but um, I think I'm just going to turn it over to you and let you uh, do your thing and uh, okay. read for a while and then I will come back and we'll start the Q&A portion of the night.
1: Okay, great. And just a, a, a real quick question um, to uh, to ask or confirm, have people there, have they read A Haunting on the Hill? I'm just thinking uh. in terms of of if of spoilers or giving i won't be reading from the last page but (laughs) (laughs) i think
0: some some may have read it and some may not and i see in the chat one person says i'm reading it right now so
1: okay what what page are you on and i and i i'll stop revealing anything after that that page (laughs) yeah um now what i'm going to do is i'm going to read a portion that kind of gives um a little bit of a Uh, a feeling for the voice of each character. There are four central characters in this book for those who have not read it. Um, They are all uh, at Hill House to perform, well, actually to rehearse a play that one of the four has written. And uh, that person is Holly. She's a playwright. She's kind of a failed playwright, but she has received an arts grant and she very sensibly takes it and she rents out Hill House for a couple of weeks. To rehearse her her play in progress. The play is called Witch Night, and it is an adaptation of an actual play from the late 1500s um, that was based on a real account of a woman named Elizabeth Sawyer who was executed as a witch um, in the in the 1500s. So the characters in this scene are Holly, the playwright, Amanda, who is a woman of a certain age probably mid-60s, who is an an actor, and she is playing Elizabeth the Witch. Nisa, who is the girlfriend of Holly and is an incredibly talented performer, folk singer, songwriter, who's adapting a series of murder ballads as musical accompaniment to the play. And um, Stevie, who was a very successful child actor, but who had uh, suffered a trauma then and has never, his acting career went off the rails. And he is now working on sound for the play. But he is also playing the part of Thomason, who is the devil in the form of a dog who um, makes a deal with Elizabeth Sawyer in the play. Uh, she basically sells her soul to the devil dog in exchange for revenge upon the people who are tormenting or for being a witch. So this is the very first rehearsal the, the group of people is having at Hill House. And they are gathered in the living room. And there's a fireplace there, but does not have a fire in it. They've been forbidden to, by the landlady who's renting, the realtor who's renting it out. No fires in it. So this is the first time that all of them have been together and they're doing a run-through of witch night. So this is from A Haunting on the Hill. And they're arguing. They argue a lot. So they're having a fight. Amanda leaned forward, holding up her sheaf of pages. Perhaps we could run lines, she said evenly. Break the spell. Great idea. The I speaking here is Holly. Great idea. I settled my laptop on my knees and looked at Nisa. Ready, baby? For an opener, Nisa had adapted a 14th century ballad called The Devil's Nine Questions, a series of riddles posed by a figure who was either a wicked knight, or an elf, or the devil, depending on the song variant. He intends to rape, or kill, or both, the maiden who can't answer correctly. Nisa had changed the maiden to an old woman, Elizabeth Sawyer, the witch, who counters the devil's questions. What is sharper than a thorn? What is louder than a horn? Hunger is sharper than a thorn, and fear is louder than a horn. Nisa sang the devil's lines in a low, insinuating near whisper, her voice twisting the words into something unearthly and foreboding, a barely contained rage that might erupt. I'd heard her perform the original ballad before, but still the hairs on my neck stood up. Amanda's replies as Elizabeth sounded thin and unconvincing, more spoken than sung, yet that worked in her favor, her Elizabeth was out of her element, vulnerable. What is deeper than the sky, and what is worse than a woman's lies? The grave is deeper than the sky, and you yourself are the king of lies. Amanda's voice rose strongly as she recited her last line, and she sat up straight in her chair as Nisa drew a deep breath and sang the final verse, triumphant, though this victory was meant to be Elizabeth's and not the devil's. Only later would he come to her as the black dog, Thomason. The moment that the fiend she named away, he flew in a burst of flame. Nisa's voice filled the room like water fills a crystal tumbler. For an instant, the shadows withdrew from the windows, allowing hazy light to show through the glass. I felt myself relax. The play was working. Better than that, it was casting its own spell, one we each had a hand in. It's not just going to be okay. It's going to be great, I thought. Smiling, I glanced at Nisa and then Amanda, waiting for her to speak her next line. Some call me witch. And through their hatred, they've taught me how to be one. From there, it just got better and better. Often at a first read-through, actors give cursory performances. You can't even really call them performances. It's more like they're starting to find their way through the words and story and characters. Now, now, however, everyone seemed almost uncannily immersed. So it goes on a little bit, and they're, they're going through the lines. And Amanda says, or no, Stevie the devil says, command me to destroy anyone who has hurt you, sweet Elizabeth. I will do this faster than you can draw breath, on condition that you give your body and soul to me. Stevie reached for Amanda's hand, his eyebrows lifted as his lips parted softly, waiting for her reply. But Amanda wasn't looking at him she was staring at the fireplace from behind the fieldstone chimney breast came a scrabbling noise the frantic scratching of nails or claws followed by a clatter like gravel falling from a great height stevie jumped to his feet as cinders exploded out onto the grate the scrabbling grew louder and more frenzied stevie swayed as though drunk his hands clawing at his ears i Tried to stand too, but my legs wouldn't move. The damper, I thought, it can't get past the damper. But the housekeeper had opened the damper. With a mewling shriek, a dark mass tumbled onto the hearth, a shape with too many legs and too many eyes. A charred log spun out under the floor next to it, and Stevie barely managed to kick it back toward the fireplace. The writhing shape emitted a high-pitched squeal, revealing its long legs and equally long ears. Sparks that I had mistaken for eyes. Its lips peeled back in blackened petals, and Nisa screamed as it leapt from the hearth, bumping into her, her chair. Stevie grabbed the fireplace poker. Don't hurt it, shrieked Nisa. The black hair darted from the room. I stared after it, feeling like I had, after listening to Macy's Lee's story. Horrified and drunk, almost drugged. Holly! Someone... grabbed my hand nisa i lurched at last to my feet and ran into the main hall the window beside the door had been left open and without hesitating the hair leapt through the gap to land on the veranda outside i'll stop there
2: no you
0: can't stop there (laughs) (laughs)
1: it's just
0: getting good um
2: thank you so much
0: for that Uh, Thank you so much for that reading. You know, one of the things that I love so much about your readings, Liz, is that is how actorly, how theatrical they are. I mean, you, you take on the, the voices of your characters and you can see in this book that your your characters are actors or at least they're involved in the theatrical world. So can you talk a little bit about like the the connection of the, the theater to your writing?
1: Yeah, uh, well, I, I'm a a failed playwright and a failed actor <laughs> and a failed director. Um, I really, I I became state struck at an early age and I, I really wanted to do it. And I went to university and I was in a BFA program. I was actually the, their first playwriting student. And at the time, their only playwriting student. And um, given my my record at the university, it's good that they continued the playwriting <laughs> program. Um, I I left after three years, but um, anyway, I I was not a good playwright, and I realized after three years that I I never would be. That it was much harder to be a playwright than I had thought it would be, and probably harder than any any other kind of writing. But it's always kind of stuck with me that that was something I really wanted to do and I couldn't do. So for this story, Holly is you know somebody who kind of had a, a career as a playwright that was successful, and then it got derailed. Um, and if you read the book, you'll find out why. And so she's always wanted to reclaim this. And um, and this grant, arts grants that she receives gives her that opportunity. But even though I did not pursue a career as a playwright, I continue to be kind of stage struck. And I have friends who are performers or actors, and I've just always been really drawn to that aspect of the arts. Um, Certainly as, as a, a viewer, you know, somebody in the audience um, and somebody reading about it. And I love reading biographies of actors and theater people and performers. But it's also something that's just really fun to write about. And um, several of my books from, from Winterlong, my first novel, um, which has a troop of um, Shakespearean actors uh, traveling across this post-apocalyptic landscape, and, uh, you know, it's not the best depiction or the most realistic depiction of an acting troupe, but it was, it was fun to write it. And my novel, Illyria, also deals with um, a high school, a group of high school students putting on a production of Shakespeare's Twelfth Night. And um, anyway, it's just something I've returned to a lot because I love it. It's a lot of fun to play, um, to play with theater on the page. And it doesn't quite make up for never having been able to <laughs> do it in real life. But, but it's about as close as I'm going to get, I guess.
0: <laughs> right. I mean, it certainly gives you like uh, some amazing characters <clears throat> like uh, like Nissa and uh, and Amanda, especially in in this novel. I mean, the 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 clash of egos is one of the great things <laughs> about this novel. Just watch them uh, watching them uh, kind of play off against each other.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's a lot of fun. I mean, it, it's sort of, you know, when you wind up. When you wind up actors and put them in a room together, you, you know, sparks fly. And and if you're lucky, you know, the sparks ignite a fire and you get to see something wonderful happen on stage. But that, that doesn't always happen, you know. Um, but it's a lot of fun to, you know, it, again, in a book or, or a play or, or fiction, unlike real life, you, you can really play with this without having hurt feelings and people storming off the stage and the entire enterprise <laughs> come crashing down.
0: Um, Let me ask you a little bit about the about the novel itself and and beginning with with its very existence. I mean, um, this is a novel that's the kind of official sequel um, to uh, Shirley Jackson's famous novel, The Haunting of Hill House. Um, You received the permission and support of the Jackson estate uh, in order to write this novel. And you're the first person that they've given that kind of permission to. Can you tell us a little bit about how that came about?
1: Yeah. Well, they, the, the Jackson estate had approached me about eight or nine years ago. Uh, and we spoke at that time and, and asked me if I'd be interested in doing this. They they actually were talking to two other writers as well. And I said, yeah, it sounded great. And, you know, I wrote up some sample chapters and uh, they said, oh, this is great. And um, then it, the, I, you know I, I never really found out what happened I think what happened is that they had something come on you know come along with a you know a movie or the tv series maybe and they backburned the project and which I was fine with I was like yeah you know there was no um, acrimony or anything it was just like we will we'll revisit this another time and I said fine so then during the pandemic in 2020 um, the agent for the estate got back in touch with me and Said, you know, what would you think about doing this project again? And I said, that'd be great. I would love to. So we kind of, you know, he and I and um, Lawrence, who is Shirley Jackson's oldest son and the executor for the estate, we had a number of Zoom meetings in which we kind of tossed around different ideas, trying to think of, you know, how we could revisit Hill House. And I came up with this idea which was basically, let's put on a show <laughs> in <the> Hill House. <laughs> what could way? go wrong? <laughs> what could possibly go wrong? Exactly. Uh, and and so they were like, Oh yeah, that, that sounds great. So um so that's what happened. You know, then we went to my my publisher and they they were like, Okay, yeah, go and and so I went. Um but yeah, it was it was a lot of fun and, and it was not, you know. It was something they had come to ask me to do, so I had not, you know, it wasn't like I had uh, had been sitting all this time, you know, or for my entire life, dying to to write a follow on to the haunting of Hill House. But given the opportunity to do it, I jumped on it, and it was also like, you know, no pressure, right? Right. <laughs> so, a nice
0: so... a nice little pandemic <laughs> project.
1: Exactly, it was my nice little pandemic project. But I uh, mean, so, yeah.
0: You you're like the perfect person to write this I think because I mean you are so steeped in uh ghost stories and and you know the literature of haunted houses you you know Shirley Jackson's work backwards and forwards I mean it really is they made a really wise choice I think in in reaching out to you and the book book really testifies to that I think so
1: well thank you it it was fun I mean it was it was especially fun when it was finished <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> there was a certain amount of anxiety, you know, I, I, I do feel, I felt like I did pull it off when I finished it. You know, I, I felt like, okay, sometimes I finish a project. I'm like, eh, didn't quite do it, but that's the best I could do. But with this one, I felt like, yeah, I hit my mark. And when Lawrence said that he really liked it, you know, he, he loved it. He, he thought the ending was great. You know, he thought it was terrifying. and And I was like, okay, that, that was good. At that point, I felt like, even yeah. if nobody else liked it, if if he you know felt that I had done well by his mother's work and this this great classic work of her of hers, um, then I felt okay. So yeah, so that was good.
0: That's an incredible testimony from him. I think, <laughs> well well earned. Um, Liz, the way we, the way we do this is we kind of tag Jacob and I kind of tag team our um, our guest, and I'm going to bring him on now and and turn over some questions to him.
2: Thanks, Paul. Uh, so yeah, you admit obviously there's there's a clear uh, a connection to uh, the haunting of Hill House that, and uh, you, you pay homage to it very well without giving away too many details of of, of the horrors that encapsulate these uh, people's lives while they while they're um, in Hill House uh, rehearsing this play and stuff. Um, I also noticed, and in fact, in, in the excerpt that you've read, um, you have you know revised murder ballads. Uh, throughout the the novel, you have references to ancient Greek tragedies. Amanda will often bring them up, and Holly or Nisi will finish the the line from the Greek tragedy. Um, there's details about toy theaters, which, um, for those who aren't familiar, they're, they're, they're usually printed on paper and cardboard, and they were kind of based on popular plays, and they'd hand them out, really popular in the 19th century. They're kind of making a comeback now, too. Um, <laughs> there's even references to uh, songs like uh, uh, Sister Europe, By uh, psychedelic furs, (laughs) which I have to admit, I and I'm no spoilers or anything, but I did listen to Sister Europe during that moment in the book, just to really, really immerse myself in it. Um, I think there's even a reference to um, uh, Nirvana's Unplugged album with Kurt Cobain and everything. So uh, how much research like went into uh, these forms of entertainment that you kind of like interspersed into the novel? Like what made you choose them for this particular story?
1: Well, basically, these are all things that I love. And so I just kind of threw them all into the mix when whenever I'm writing something, I have to find my own way into it. I have to find something that I'm going to feel very strongly about that. I really something that I really love or something that I'm really interested in that I don't know a lot about um, so I can explore that. And for this book because of the nature of it it was you know basically playing in somebody else's sandbox i needed to really honor shirley jackson's vision and her legacy so there was not really anything i could do with hill house itself um the characters i had more leeway with but i i i really felt like i needed something that felt very much my own that i could follow and so the music turned out to really be that thing, you know, the murder ballads and the and the folk songs, because um, and that's something I really love and I'm really fascinated by. I mean, a, a lot of my books deal with music in one form or another. Um, it's it's again, it's one of those things I return to a lot. And for this particular book, I I wasn't sure what that thread was going to be that I would be able to follow through, you know, find my way into it. And then. Um, I, you know, was at um, uh, the my partner's house where I stay, where I live when I live in London, and he had a copy of a collection of child ballads and old ballads in the house, and I, I picked it up and started reading it. And a lot of them, I, I, you know, I was familiar with from just listening to folk music, classic folk music, for you know, forty years, fifty years. But I started reading the book, and I thought. Oh, wow, I could, you know, reading these ballads, rereading them. And I thought this would be perfect for this play that they're doing, because some of them are actually, you know, it existed at the same time as as, uh, the Witch of Edmonton. That was the name of the real life Jacobean play. And these these folk ballads would have been contemporaneous with that. And actually, um, they don't, you know, we don't have any record of. ballads being written about Elizabeth Sawyer and sung on the streets of of London, but it's very possible that they did exist. She was very, very well known as a figure, you know, after her death, well before her death and and her trial and then after her death. And there were, were broadsides written about her. And it was decades after her death that this play was written about her. So I just felt like this was one of those things that sort of dropped from the sky into my lap i thought yeah i can make use of these murder ballads so i i did you know and so, some of them i pretty much used verbatim um what has come down in the child ballads and other collections and for other ones i changed the the lyrics the way that nisa was doing in the book to come up with something different that would kind of be more fitting um with the tone of of hill House, of you know a haunting on the hill and, and the haunting of Hill House
2: nice yeah i i it it's really cool uh not only to look at it like from a historical perspective to 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 fold these uh ballads that are that had happened the same time the original play was happening but to to bring them into modern times and I noticed that also actually in this book um there are there are a lot of times that Things are referenced that I think a lot of us can relate to. I, the one that I continue to get back to is the cost of living. There's there's a <laughs> there's a um uh person who lives in a trailer uh, down from Hill House, uh, and I'm trying not to give anything away. So person who lives in a trailer down by Hill House, and like the joke is like, well that would sell for two hundred thousand dollars now and everything. And there's also mention of smartphones. Um, I believe you had mentioned, you know, Stevie's the sound guy, so he has this high tech recording device that he kind of employs. In, in the um, uh, book as well. Um, do you, when you're folding these contemporary topics and devices in the narrative, um, how do you do, how do you go about that with, you know, dis, without disrupting that Gothic tone um, at, that, you know, Jackson employed and that you also employ in, in your writing?
1: That's a great question. Um, I think whenever I approach um, a supernatural story like this one, it, what's really important to me is for whatever I write about, for it to seem as though it could really happen, you know, that this could actually happen now. And what would, you know, what would this be like? What would it feel like? So I could see the events in the Hill House, you know, actually occurring, maybe. Never happened to me, but if they did happen, they would happen in the world that you, you know, that you and I, that we live in, that all of us in this virtual room live in. I I don't think, um, you know, I'm not a big believer in the supernatural, but if there was uh, this paranormal element to our to our world, I think it is going to be unimpacted by whether or not we have cell phones or we're all sitting, you know, in front of a, a fire outside a cave somewhere, you know, thousands of years ago. So I felt like just having those modern trappings here, just made in, in, here in the novel, um, would we'll just add to the verisimilitude and, and just sort of the, this feeling like, oh, wow, this maybe this could actually happen. You know, mm-hmm. obviously it could not. There's a suspension of disbelief. But but I was also playing with the sort of post it's a post pandemic novel. And one of the things that's in there, you know, Holly and Nisa in particular, you know, talking about um, just getting out of the city and and getting away for a few days. I think you know during the pandemic we were all trapped inside our homes and uh, not able to escape, not able to escape our own heads, our, our own families, our loved ones, um, or else being very very isolated and on our you know on our own. And I think it's interesting that this this autumn there were quite a number of haunted house books that came out. It was like all of a sudden this was you know some years everybody's writing a vampire novel some mm-hmm. years everybody's writing a you know a zombie novel and this year it seemed like everybody was writing a haunted house novel which you know i i had no clue until i started seeing the lists of all the books that were coming out and you know yeah. and of course they they slant them all to come out around halloween i was like oh right. my god it's like <laughs> everybody has written well you know has George, George Saunders has probably written one every you know all of these people are are writing uh, haunted house books, but i I do think that that was sort of um you know uh an aftermath of, of the pandemic. I think this was you know I think people tend to write horror or supernatural stories of this type where we're kind of working something out as a culture yeah. you know we're sort of working something out in the zeitgeist, and I think for whatever reason, haunted houses have turned out to be an effective way of kind of channeling what we went through with the pandemic. Obviously, there's many other ways of doing it, Um, but this particular one, I think, you know, for whatever reason, had a certain resonance right now.
2: Yeah, it it is interesting how they, you know, there was a pattern of, of them coming out at the same time and stuff and, and, and re- in reference to other horror, like I I often think of horror films and stuff where I I'm not really well versed in them or anything, but every Halloween I, I, I tune into a couple of them and then I read about the history of them and you start to learn, Oh, well this is actually, you know, a, a you know, Texas chainsaw massacre is actually a relation to the Vietnam war, like a response to the Vietnam war or what, what have you. So seeing, you know, us being trapped in our houses and how, much of a nightmare that I can actually be. I can I can certainly see why why there were quite a few of them uh, coming out this year. Um, I'm gonna fold in a question from the chat. I think it's gonna kind of align with one of the questions that I had, and then I'll I'll throw it back over to Paul. Um, so there are a lot of haunting uh, visuals in this book. Uh, my favorite um, is is, and again I'm not gonna give away too much because I think it's relatively early, but it's it's the first time the giant black hair kind of rears its head okay. and bears. It's rounded teeth and they're bloodstained and they're, you know, like it's just a haunting visual and um, it, it, it catches you by surprise. And and one of our uh, uh, guests or um, attendees tonight uh, was referencing your other book, Wilding Hall, um, having a number of scary moments in it as well. Uh, what techniques do you use to kind of elicit that fear in your readers? And like, you know, can you talk a little bit about language? and the element of shock and surprise that comes with, you know, this type of writing or, or any type of creative writing for that matter?
1: That's a really good question. I, I'm not sure I can answer it. <laughs> um, I, I think that some of it ties into what I was just saying about trying to, to really make the reader feel that this, that the world that they're inhabiting on the page or on the screen is analogous to the world that we inhabit and and so to do that i try to describe things um very carefully and and very realistically so that you know this particular book opens with holly and nisa are away on a weekend somewhere in in the hudson valley you know i'm i'm imagining the hudson valley it's not named and they're driving you know up there and she and uh uh, uh, Holly's looking out the window and she's seeing the results of gentrification, but she's also seeing sort of the ravages of, um, you know, people being un- unemployed or underemployed and this beautiful, beautiful landscape that's been sort of desecrated um, over the years by poverty and, and other issues. And we, you know, and I'm not belaboring that, but that's, she's just seeing that there. So I'm kind of setting this as like, this is a real place. Um, but it, but, Anything can happen there, um, and as for language, I think again, I, I try to write very precisely. Um, and I'm sure you know, there's I don't think there's any writer there, however much of a hack they may be, who's going to say, well, I don't try to write. You know, I I write sloppily. I don't try to write precisely. But I, I think that some of us more than others may really just kind of get hung up on that. <laughs> And so I I do spend a lot of time really thinking about, you know, one word, one phrase, one sentence to the next. How am I constructing um, this edifice, you know, that's Hill House or, or, you know, whatever it is, Wilding Hall, um, in a way that the reader can really see it and feel it and and, uh, experience it the way that I am. And as for creating the, the shocks or the, you know, moments of, of terror or, or unease. I I mean, I feel like I work as a writer better in a mode of just sort of, of growing dread or unease that that is what I like to read. Um, Robert Aikman is one of my favorite writers of this kind of story. And, and he was just, you know, unparalleled in writing stories of, of unease. I mean, some of his stories were, when I, even though I've read them more than once, at the end of the story, I'm like, oh, "What the hell just happened there?" I don't really know. All I know is it really creeped me out. Um, so for me, I, I tend to want to create that mood or tone or atmosphere. But people reading this kind of story, you know, myself included, you're reading it because you want to, you, you know, you want to be scared. So at some point, you want to have that gotcha moment. You want to have that jump scare. And I don't usually really go in for a lot of gore um, or Mm -hmm. grizzly stuff. Sometimes I do, but, you know, not so much in in the latter part of my writing career. So I try to choose carefully the moments when something scary will happen, you know, and and I think in part by just setting it up as sort of this slow burn where you're kind of reading along and you're sort of getting, you know, uneasy, but you're you're kind of reassured as a reader that, oh, well, I kind of recognize this. It's sort of a creepy house, but I've been here before and I know these people. But then and then when you have something startling or frightening happen, it actually has more impact um, than in a, a novel or, you know, or a film where you 're just kind of hammered with a lot of images and and loud you know noises and and sound effects and everything else, I think that that can I think that can actually diminish um, the power of of something but you know writers write in different ways um, mm-hmm. uh, Stephen King you know, obviously writes very differently than I do. Shirley Jackson writes very differently than i do but but that 's what I like to do I, I like to sort of have a slow burn and then have um you know have the scary thing come out and grab you by the throat
2: <laughs> and you certainly and you certainly notice it in a haunting of the hill um where i mean again the 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 pacing and, and 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 movement of these characters and stuff is is such that like a lot of the unsettling parts is just the silence or the or the like the unknowing and then it's so just some like very like these these things that kind of shock or thrill us are are kind of low-key they're not they're not like suddenly you know suddenly an explosion right right (laughs) you know what i mean and so and i think that's where it, it really those visuals stick with you um even as a nod to jackson's uh piece with the um uh tree trunk that's cut down and stuff and there's kind of mention of it a couple of times and just that haunting element of it of like knowing what happened in the original novel with that tree and everything um yeah so thank you um paul i'm going to hand it back over to you so you can ask a question we got a few in the chat as well yep thanks jacob
0: yeah uh i'm going to actually kind of build on on what jacob was just talking about which is pace um and i wondered and this this is also kind of drawing on a question from uh, one of our uh, attendees in the chat um, who, who called attention to the fact that the chap, there's many chapters, they're, they're short chapters. Um, and can you talk a little bit about why you decided to do it that way and um, how writing a, a short chapters like that impacts the pace? I mean, are you still able to vary your pace when you structure a novel that way? And if so, how do you do it?
1: Well, I didn't use to write books with short chapters. Um, as you may remember, <laughs> I tended to write books. Some books were only one very very long chapter. But <laughs> I, I noticed over the last ten years or so, probably because of our, you know, decreasing attention spans, that more and more novels were being written with very short chapters, kind of more like sound bites, and. And I, and I thought they were effective. I can't remember when, the, you know, what the book was that I read that this really hit me. But there was a novel that I read. And I thought, oh, I see what this, you know, what they're doing here. They, they have all these short chapters and, it's, and it, it makes it very readable. You want to keep going. So I, I kind of stole from that. And I thought, all right, I, I was whatever it was I was writing had longer chapters, but I would just find a place within the longer chapter to, to cut it off um and truncate it you know i would just go through and i'd be like oh yeah i can end it on this sentence and you finish that sentence and you're on, you're going to want to know what the next sentence is um so i just kind of trained myself to um to either write those sentences right off the back or write you know those uh paragraphs pages right off the bat or else to go back through the chapter and find where those breaks were um And I think it is a very effective way of of, um, hooking a reader and keeping them reading. I think you sacrifice something there. I think you sacrifice, you know, sort of a a slow build and detail and perhaps some involvement, deeper involvement with your characters, you know? Um, Left to my own devices, I am not sure that I would write that way. I'm not sure it's my favorite way of writing, but I, I think it is an effective one uh and, and you know some people don't like it there was there was some reviewer i forget where it was um in one of the uk papers i said they and and they then they were like oh this is a great book but why all these annoying annoyingly short chapters and that was the only <laughs> that was the only review that that called me out for that because every you know everything else is pretty much oh yeah i love the short chapters keep going so you know in a way it's kind of a cheap trick yeah um, i i I think personally the most effective narrative mode for supernatural fiction is the novella. I think a novella is perfect. I think some of the greatest um <clears throat> supernatural stories that have ever been written are novellas, you know, The Turn of the Screw. I mean, even The Haunting of Hill House is a pretty short novel, but um Oliver Onions, The Beckoning Fair One, uh, if you think of Heart of Darkness as a horror novel, you know, that's a short book. And I think yeah. it's because when you're reading a novella, it you know it ideally can be read at, at one sitting. You know, you you could sit down, you pick up a novella, and and a novella technically is you know something between I think seventeen thousand and and forty thousand words. I think that that's the definition of a, a novella, or or you know roundabouts. But you're picking that story up and. You can read it at one sitting, which means the, the writer, if they're doing a good job, they're casting a spell over you, which I think is very important, especially important in the horror and, and supernatural stuff, because you really have to have that willing suspension of disbelief. You really have to have the reader lulled into thinking that this could really happen. And you're building this sense of dread and unease and fear. But every time the reader closes that book, all of that goes away. Whatever tension you are building, I don't care how good a writer you are. If you are, you know, writing something and the reader is on the edge of their seat, but if they close that book, if they stop reading for any reason, all of that leeches away. So the next time they go and open that book up again and pick up the story again, they have to build all that back up, you know, and the writer doesn't know at what point they're going to put down the book. So you, you know, I think it's a very, I think it's a good exercise if you really want to write this sort of thing. To, to really just to try, sit down and try to write a novella. It, it's sort of, you know, it, it's almost like you're just telling a story to somebody, and in one sitting, you know, the way you would tell a ghost story. I mean, obviously, we can, you can be like Scheherazade, and you're telling a different story every night to kind of, you know, keep the king from killing you. But, um but I think for, you know. A reader to be able to just be immersed in that world and not have that interruption, and I think that's one of the things that the short chapters do. You know, conversely, is that they keep you reading to the end. Ideally, you would sit down with this book or any book and just read it from page one to the last page. But um, you know, I'm sure that doesn't happen very often.
0: It's too long. Yeah, maybe the short chapters also make it easier to kind of pick up that sense of dread. You know, again, at the you could kind of you put it aside, put the book down. And hey, you got to work tomorrow. Right. So you put the book down, you pick it up again the next evening and the short chapters kind of throw you back into the momentum that you had, you know, set aside the previous night, perhaps. Um,
1: yeah, yeah, no, that makes sense.
0: Yeah. I don't know. It's I just I, it's it's interesting and it's definitely something that I that I noticed in, in reading the book. Um, And I want to ask you one other kind of technical question, which is um, about point of view, Um, because the book opens in the first person point of view and from Holly as as our narrator. And we we follow Holly for quite a few chapters. I think it's like I don't know, it might be 20 some chapters or so before uh, another before the, the point of view changes to third person and another character's perspective comes into the novel. And from that point on. Uh, the chapters vary um and there's a first person perspective of Holly that continues throughout the entire novel, interspersed with um point of view chapters in the third person from various other characters amanda and stevie and and Nisa. So can you talk a little bit about how that came to be and and what you were up to in structuring the book that way
1: yeah i well i I love to write in the first person, and a lot of my my books and stories. Our, our first-person narratives, but I think for myself, it's it's kind of too easy of a trap to fall into to be writing in the first person all the time. But for this particular story, I, I did feel very strongly that I wanted to have Holly's voice there at the outset. But I think it, I think it is difficult. Um, it's not impossible, but I think it can be difficult to to pull off a horror novel or a supernatural novel in in the first person because you you're not getting that big wide view. You know, you are not seeing if it, if it, 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 it's being told in the first person. If I'm telling you know I'm telling you the story, I am not seeing the hand coming down <laughs> behind me. You know, I'm not seeing the huge shadowy looming figure behind me until it's too late so you're not able to write about all that other scary stuff so that was one of the reasons why i shifted uh to having the different points of view but also i I wanted to show the effect that the house the hill house which is you know another character in the book really i wanted to show the impact that hill house was having on each one of them so i wanted it to be this sort of Rashomon uh like narrative where each one of the characters is having their own experience of hill house and their own experience of the rehearsal so there's a lot of sort of paranoia and mistrust and um suspicion you know a lot of ego uh ego you know skirmishes going on uh but but that's some of that is the house acting on them and to be able to show that I really needed, I felt like I needed to follow each one of them around for a while. But I, I also wanted to be able to return to Holly because she's sort of the, um, she's kind of the barometer for whatever is happening. She, she sort of, in some ways, you know, I don't know that this is a spoiler, but she kind of remains more steady throughout much of the story. Um, While other things are or she seems to be, you know, remaining more steady while while the other ones seem to be more buffeted by um, by the vibes that they're picking up from Hill House.
0: There was a a, a point somebody just made in the chat that I want to call call attention to here. Uh, Many people think negatively about head hopping. So this is helpful to hear. So can you distinguish for for our uh, guests here, like the difference between what you're doing in this novel with uh, multiple points of view and head hopping? <laughs>
1: um, I, I'm not sure that I can. I, I guess head hopping. Is to me, that would seem like you're just kind of a more random shifting points of view without necessarily thinking about the impact it's going to have on a reader if it's going to make any sense or not and you know um I tend to think a lot in cinematic terms, and if you're watching a movie in which it's just constantly shifting from one point of view to another if the camera is constantly changing an angle um, so you you're not sure who is seeing what or why um that can be very confusing, and you're not going to be able to really develop an emotional attachment to any, you know, point of view, and you because you may not know whose point of view it is. And obviously, some films are made um, to confuse the the viewer, and and I think some stories are written that way too, where you want to have a lot of shifting perspectives, head hopping, different points of view, whatever you want to call it, because you want the reader to you want them to not be sure who's talking whose story it is you know maybe this is somebody who's who is you know very disassociated and they have a lot of fragments of their personality that are coming through when it's one person who's seeing all these different things or maybe it's all the you know different members of a family but i i would say that you know, I don't ever tell people, don't ever, you don't ever do this, you know, don't ever do that. The main thing you don't ever want to do is bore your reader, because if you do that, you know, you're, all is lost. Um, so if you could do something like head hopping effectively, if you're jumping around and showing us a lot of different points of view and you know why you're doing it and there's a reason for doing it, um, then I would say go for it. But if you're not sure why you're doing it and it's something that's going to leave the reader confused for no good reason, if you have a reason for it, then I would say, yeah, do it. But if not, I think that you just basically really want to know why you are making any choice. You know, I mean, I I think about this all the time in writing. I mean, it's, it's, you know, writing is it is all technique. It's all, you know, choosing. What? Why am I punctuating this sentence this way? Why am I choosing a a period full stop here rather than a colon or a semicolon or, or a comma? Um, and I, I think about those things all the time. You know, I'm constantly thinking about where do I break this sentence? Do I break this sentence? How do I do it? How, you know, whose point of view do I want to show here? Why, you know? Do I want to have an omniscient view here? Is it you know? Am I looking for the wide angle? Do I I want to have something very tight and focused? So I think that it's a difficult thing to do, and I think it's something um, that we just learn. One one learns by just writing a lot and reading a lot and thinking about it a lot. You know, it's uh, yeah. Anyway, so it's um it, it's difficult. It's a challenge. Uh, But, you know, I think reading and writing is is how you learn to do it.
2: That
0: makes me wonder about your your writing process. Do you how how much do you outline your your books beforehand and how much do you think beforehand about like, you know, what what, um, you know, point of view structure am I going to be using here am I going to be using you know for example short chapters here am I going to let myself spread out a little bit more do you come to those decisions prior to the writing or are they kind of generated by the act of writing itself
1: I think they're definitely generated by the act of writing itself I'm I'm a very intuitive writer um which is not necessarily the most efficient way to write um but I, I I don't know what I'm doing until I'm doing it. So I I am not an outliner. I, I will sometimes force myself to do an outline. Um, or my my editor will force me to do it. Somebody, you know, I might have an idea in mind or a character or a setting. And usually I begin with setting. Um, and with the case of Hill House, you know, the setting was there. So I I had to, um, I had something to work with from the get go, but I just have to sort of um, find my way through it. And so it takes, it can take me a very long time because if I'm writing something from beginning to end um, to figure out what I'm doing, then I have to go back to the beginning and fix everything that I, I didn't, you know, I didn't know what I was doing um, when I wrote the first draft.
0: So how many drafts would a, would a typical novel of yours go through
1: oh hmm. um i would say probably on average maybe three drafts of my own two or three and then and then my editor makes me write like 39 additional drafts (laughs) So, (laughs) so, so there's there's a lot but i uh you know, uh, I write something like I was saying, I'll I'll write something from beginning to end. And, and then I have to go back. And, you know, by the time I get to the end, I'm like, and I look at the beginning, I'm like, Oh, yeah, that's not going to work. I have to completely change everything. And that's, you know, sometimes I do know what I'm doing. (laughs) And that that happens occasionally, where it's like, I have a, a very clear vision of what's going to happen uh it, it, that happens more often with short fiction with a novella you know or a short story um i'm trying I, I can't think off the top of my head if it's ever happened with a novel but I can, i'm sure it has somewhere at some point and with this this particular book with the haunting on the hill i you know i knew that um i knew you know going into a haunted house story you kind of know what's going to happen a bunch of people are going going to go into a haunted house and you know they're not all going to make it out again, right? Um, you know, I mean, really, it kind of comes down to that. <laughs> and it's not rocket so, science. Yeah, exactly. It's really not. And or if they all come out again, they all come out changed in some terrible way. um So, so basically, your, the tension that you're building up is as to who's going to, you know, who's going to escape, who's going, you know, who's going to be the final girl. um And that that sounds simplistic, but I think that really is the basis for a lot of um, a lot of novels of this type.
0: Um, Let me pull another question out of the uh, out of the chat. And this is actually, I think, a pretty good one. We're kind of closing in on the end of our night. It's gone gone (laughs) like that. Um, What advice would you give to yourself if if you could? (laughs) If you could go back and and you know talk to to the younger Elizabeth Hand who's just starting out on her writing journey what would you say to to her uh that you might also want to share to to writers in in the audience who are at the beginning of their journeys
1: That's a great question um I would probably say learn to outline <laughs> 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 I, I'm well because I think that if you if you if you know how to outline, I think you'll save yourself a lot of angst. Um, but by the same token, I think for me, a lot of you know the pleasure of writing comes in not knowing what I'm doing. Um, so I would say that the, you know, I, I actually would say outlining is a very useful skill to develop if, if your brain works that way. And if it doesn't, I would say um, one of the most crucial things is just to, you know, they this is something we hear all the time, but to to try to write every day. Um, but if you can't do that, to um, you know, to be thinking deeply about it every day, to just be thinking about it. Um and and thinking about it when you're reading something, you know. Uh if if you don't have time to write, if you're if you're working on a novel or a thesis or story, whatever you're doing um it you know to work a bit on it every day and and be very mindful of of what you're doing um because i did do that and i for a lot of my um even before i was a published writer you know the the, one of the worst periods of my life was when there was i think about two years in my 20s when i didn't write at all and up until then i'd always written i might have been writing crap and i wasn't getting published but i was writing something but that period when I wasn't writing anything at all was was very, very distressing to me. Um, so I think insofar as you're able to to try to carve out that time. But um, other than that, I would just say, you know, I, I don't know. I, I feel like I whatever decisions I made, even if they were bad ones, that they turned out okay for me in, in the end. I may have been a really bad playwright and failed at that. But I was able to make use of it now, you know. So. You know, so I would say something to think about is just, you know, all the things that seem to be failures may actually turn out to be the stuff that when the time comes, you will actually be able to make really good use out of. You know, that might have been good advice for me to hear because I, I failed a lot. Um, but a lot of the things I failed at, I actually have been able to um, to make use of in my writing, you know, much, much later. So they turned out to be, you know. Good things, in a way, fortunate fails. So, um, I don't know if that's actually advice that anybody can follow, but but it, it worked for me.
0: <laughs> no, it's a great perspective to have. I mean, in a lot of cases, I think, you know, unfortunately, you ha- you have to go through those 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 horrible things and and have kind of an accumulation of years go by before you start to realize, oh, I I can use that that terrible thing that that you know almost killed me 20 years ago. <laughs> but um well we're coming to the to the very end so i want to bring uh jacob back on jacob do you have any last uh questions i think we have time for one more probably
2: um yeah i think i mean i I can keep it pretty simple and stuff and just simply ask uh, w- what's next for you liz what's what's on what's on the docket now <laughs>
1: uh i'm working on uh a novel uh, that's sort of a, a i don't know if you'd call it a mashup of gothic and and noir but it's um it's something that's loosely inspired by daphne de moyer's rebecca and it's sort it's it's a queer reimagining of that of the two central characters of, or two of the central characters from the novel rebecca and mrs danvers and the two of them um uh, meeting and and you know being in love and having this relationship uh, in 1920s London and and going on a killing spree. <laughs> <laughs> <I> love it. <laughs> <laughs> so it's it's actually it's it's actually fun and um it's not being done you know with the permission of the Des Moines estate or anything so it's not it's not uh, a prequel or a sequel or anything like that it's just sort of um was inspired by that, because you know if, you, if you've read the book or seen the movie, you know that Rebecca and mrs danvers you know you know they had a thing i mean it's like so obvious, <laughs> and everybody know everybody knows that, so i'm just kind of you know I'm just taking that and running with it with and what? and murder. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> there you go.
2: Well, murder Cells. And that sounds like a really great uh, premise. Honestly, uh, um, I'm looking forward to to hearing more about it and seeing more about it in the future. Um, well, we're at nine o'clock. I, I can't believe that we've, we've gone through a whole hour that quickly and stuff. Um, so I'll, I'll wrap it up now. And uh, just thank you again, Liz, for sharing your uh, latest work with us today. A Haunting on the Hill go pick it up at your local bookstore. I picked mine up at Bull (laughs) Moose. Pick yours up wherever you live. Um, And for more about uh, Liz's work, I I did post it in the chat, but I'll post again as her website as well as her uh, social media handles and everything as well. Um, So thank you. Thanks again, Liz, for coming. And, And we're so glad that everyone else was able to join us this evening as well. Um, Word for Word is going to be taking a break for the month of December, um, but we'll be returning on January 24th. That'll be our annual Penman Review Fall Fiction Contest winner spotlight. Uh, That's always a great event. We usually have four or five uh, of the finalists read their work for us and and answer questions and stuff with the audience. So uh, stay tuned for that and keep an eye out for um, uh, announcements about that in your courses or uh, through uh, these new emails. I um, thanks again to you, Liz, uh, for another great night. Um, You're very yeah.
1: welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It was, it was a lot of fun.
2: Yes, <laughs> it was a delight. Much. All right. Well, take care, everyone, and have a great night.
1: Okay, you too.